All right. I look forward to this time so much. If you have a copy of the Bible with you this morning, I invite you to find um, the book of Ephesians, actually. We're stepping out of uh, Luke today uh, just for one Sunday to give attention to um, a global missions theme today. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. This is a, a book in the New Testament. It's actually a letter that Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote uh, to a particular church in a particular city, city of Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. We're going to be in Ephesians 2, um, talking today about how Jesus unites a diverse group of people. How Jesus unites a diverse group of people, an appropriate theme, I think, for um, celebrating global missions. Um, You know as well as I do that the idea of unity today is almost laughable. Every politician who comes along talks about bringing unity to our country. Um... Stop and think about that for a moment. Think about your own family, okay? Our country is 340 million people. Are you even able in your own family, extended family of 20 to 30, are you able to coalesce around like one set of ideas and values? Uh, Think about the, the diversity of ideas and values just in your own extended family and trying to find unity with, with each other. You know, that may come up for you here at Thanksgiving as you gather around the table and certain topics that are going to be avoided because you don't want to have all that fracturing going on. So think about what it would, I mean, how do you unite 340 million people? We can't even unite 20 people around a common set of ideas and values. And we, in our country, are only 4% of the entire population of the world. 4%. So now, how, how is anyone ever going to unite all of those people around one banner, one set of values and ideas that now we're moving beyond the United States? And how do you unite Belgium and Peru and New Zealand and on and Cameroon and on and on and on we go in all these countries? How in the the world could there ever be unity among such a diverse group of people? What 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 really can bring everyone together? That's what we're talking about today because the passage that we're looking at in Ephesians 2 tells us that Jesus is able to unite diverse peoples. And we're going to learn how he does it and why he does it. That's the, that's the great theme today, how Jesus is able to unite diverse peoples. And we're going to celebrate that and long for that to happen more and more and see how Jesus is glorified in the process, that he is the one who's able to unite. All right? That's where we're headed today. So point one, simply noticing that Jesus unites diverse peoples. Okay? Point two, how he does it. Point three, why he does it. That's where we're going, okay? He does it, how does he do it, why does he do it? 
That's all. Okay, we're going to start in verse 11. We're going to read through verse 22, Ephesians chapter 2. If you're able to stand this morning, I want to invite you to stand for the reading of the word. This is Paul writing. He's just written this really famous section on by grace alone, by grace you have been saved, grace alone, not your own works. And then we come to um, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. And he's just talking about how Jews and Gentiles refer to each other there in the Um, We're going to talk more about that relationship. This is verse 12. So remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Father, we are so thankful that this is true. And we give all the glory to Jesus for doing this work to accomplish what no one else could ever accomplish. And so now impress these truths on our hearts in a way that we will remember them and that we'll build a foundation for our lives. Just as Jesus is the cornerstone of this one building that we all inhabit together. And we pray in his lovely name. Amen. All right, please be seated. Now, as I said here, initially, we just noticed first that Jesus unites diverse peoples. The the plain fact of it. That's what's stated in verses 11 through 14. Jesus unites diverse peoples. The passage that's in front of us describes people who are very much at odds with each other, Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles are non-Jews. So Paul is bringing before us these two groups very much at odds with, with each other, Jews and Gentiles. We'll talk about why they were so much at odds with each other in just a moment. Here, we're just noticing the, the former position of the Gentiles that Paul is describing. Notice the words that he uses to describe their position relative to God. Uh, Separated. 
separated from Christ, this is their former position, separated from Christ, alienated from Israel, that's God's people, strangers to the covenants of promise, those belong to God's people, they're strangers to that, nothing to do with that, having no hope without God. That's really bad, isn't it? That's their status relative to God. Strangers, aliens, separated, no hope and without. So they're apart from God. That was their status relative to God. Non-Jews. These Gentiles. Now, their status relative to the Jews, relative to God's people, was hostility. Bitterness, enmity, hatred. Pick any negative adjective, any negative idea. That's, that would apply. That's how the Gentiles are feeling about the Jews. That's how the Jews are feeling about the Gentiles. Hostility. Hostile relationship. Again, we'll talk about why in just a moment. But look again at what what has happened, though. Look at Paul's description of the new thing that's happened. Verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Paul is a Jew. He's writing to Gentiles. He says of Christ Jesus, he himself is our peace who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That's amazing. How could it be? Centuries of hostility broken down in a moment in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ unites diverse peoples, even people as diverse as Jews and Gentiles. They find their unity in him. Now, I know that's not a new concept for you. I know that most of you have known that for a long time. Yeah, of course, Jesus unites diverse peoples. But what we want to do today that I think will be helpful is really understand the significance and the power of the reality that Jesus unites diverse peoples. We should just take a moment to pause and think about the the magnitude of the truth that people who can't agree on anything are able to be one in Jesus Christ. Especially, think about the power of that reality to people who observe the church from the outside. Let's bring it into a a church context for a moment. And think about the, the power of this reality that Jesus unites diverse peoples. Think about what they see when they look at the church and the power of this idea. When people on the outside look in at us and they see a group of people who are of different ethnicities, different values, different cultural expressions, different kinds of religious expression, different languages, people who don't agree on politics. Some people over here at this end of the spectrum, others over here at this end of the spectrum, and others at all points in between. Different generations among us, each with different values about how things should be done. Different generations, different values, different preferences. People, you know, just honestly, people who may not necessarily choose each other for friends. Just to hang out with. Maybe, maybe not. People who hold greatly differing views on economics and social policy and politics. 
and every other subject. And yet, instead of hating each other and canceling each other like the rest of the world, somehow this group of people has decided to love each other and even sacrifice for each other and be together all the time and say, we are one. How can that possibly be? That makes no sense. That makes no sense to anyone looking in on the church. That is the power. It's the power of other people on the outside looking at the church and saying, how can that possibly be? These people can't agree on anything and they're finding unity in Jesus Christ and not leaving each other. Like they actually, they actually love each other. And they don't agree on all these issues. I believe it really is true to say that the more diverse we are, not, not, not so much in terms of theological diversity, because there's, there's healthy boundaries theologically, but the more diverse we are in terms of social, economic, political, cultural outlook, the more diverse we are in those ways, the more glory Jesus receives in that he can unite all of us together and remove hatred and make peace. That's why at Prairie Hill, we don't aspire to uniformity in culture, politics, economics, social issues. You know, in case you're wondering, there are, there are people in this church at every part of the political spectrum. I know because I've, I've talked with you. I, and there are significant numbers of people at all points on the political spectrum. No one is an outsider here and no one is an insider. That's not the kind of uniformity that we're seeking here. We're seeking a very specific uniformity, all of our hearts tuned to Jesus Christ. And we all wrestle out in our hearts all of these other issues, social, political, cultural. We all wrestle through them the best we can and work to advocate for those things that we think will best advance the interest of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. That's the glory that Jesus Christ is able to unite us all under that one banner in spite of those differences. That's the unity that we celebrate and that we aspire to. Jesus unites diverse peoples. Okay, well, how does he do it? Just how does he create this uh, unity among people that are so different? There, There are a lot of ways to try to create unity. Leaders have tried all kinds of different things in the past, you know, political leaders or even people like football coaches, school administrators. There's a lot of people that are dealing with that uh, question of how do I take this group of people that doesn't agree on anything, very different from each other, and get them to work towards one goal? How do I unify them? Well, one, one thing you can do is uh, create or point out a common enemy. Say, hey, We're different from each other, but we've got this one common enemy. Let's work together to try to defeat them. That's one thing you can do. Another thing you can do is try to work toward um, a common goal. Set a common vision before different people. And say, hey, we're different, but let's all work toward the fulfillment of this great, larger goal that's bigger than all of us. And create unity that way. 
Um, if you've seen uh, the film Remember the Titans, you remember the uh, football coach was working with this racially diverse, uh, newly racially diverse team. And how do I get all these guys to come together and act as one team when they all hate each other? And his solution is just start listening to each other. Just stop shouting long enough to sit down and have a conversation. And they begin to appreciate each other and they grow into one team in a very beautiful way. So there's lots of different approaches to trying to make peace between diverse people. What, well, what about Jesus? How does, how does he do it? Common enemy? Common goal? Just sit down and listen to each other? No, none of those things. Jesus unites diverse peoples by destroying the basis for superiority. That's how Jesus unites diverse peoples, by destroying the basis for superiority. He doesn't um, point us to a common enemy or a common goal. He doesn't tell us to just sit down and talk with each other. He doesn't rally us to any kind of a cause. He doesn't expect us to do anything. He did all the work himself. He is the one who did it. He doesn't organize us to a great work. He did the great work. He destroyed the basis for superiority. That's what we learn from Paul in verses 15 and 16 as he tells us about this work Jesus did to unify. See, if, if you have a, a copy of the text, look back at verse 15 and see that the key word is by, B-Y. He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. How does Jesus unite diverse peoples? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That's a a really complicated phrase. Um, Law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Paul is likely just talking about the Mosaic law, the law of Moses. The law that God gave to Moses, which Moses handed to the people of Israel. And uh, the better English word to get at the idea is nullify. He nullified the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, nullified the Mosaic law. I, I think some additional explanation will be, will be helpful for us here, okay? Just thinking about the law, the role of the law, what happened with the law. God gave the law to Moses. The Ten Commandments are included in this law. All kinds of other laws are also included, which really put more meat on the bones of the Ten Commandments and really flesh out, here's what it looks like to love God and love your neighbor. The law is not just a set of rules that God thought would be a good idea for people to follow. The law is actually an expression of his own character. God is holy and just and good. And he gave his law to people 
to, as if to say to them, here's what you must do if you would represent me accurately before others. You, this is how you must live to be in line with my character. Here's how you should treat each other. Here's how you should honor me. This will be a true reflection of who I am. His law is good. If his people follow it, it will lead to flourishing life. Following his law will bring a flourishing life to them, and it will be good for the other people that live alongside them. If they follow his law, it will be good for the outsider. It will be good for the sojourner. It will be good for the poor among them. It will be good for the one in their midst who's committed a crime. It will be good for them. So Israel had the law, and it was a reflection of God's character, and it was good. But instead of leading the nation of Israel to gratitude and humble service, it led to the opposite. It led to them looking down on the outsider who didn't have or keep the law. Having the law led to a feeling of superiority. They were supposed to be um, what Moses called a kingdom of priests. This kingdom that represents God to the nations, shows the nations what God is like. But instead, they wanted to become like the nations and worship idols and live lawless lives themselves. All while looking down on the Gentiles who don't have the law. See, They had the law. They thought they were keeping it. They were doing all these external things. Not really worshiping God on the inside, but going through the procedures, having their feast days, offering sacrifices. Look how good we are because we're obeying God. We have his law. We're the good people. Those other people are horrible. They don't have the law. They're not pleasing God. That was their attitude. The law became like a club to show that they were superior and the others are inferior even though they weren't really keeping it themselves. Now, I know this story really well because this is my story. Some of you may have lived this out too. If you grew up in the church and you had the law and you knew the right things to do, and my, my, I couldn't have asked for a better upbringing. My parents told me about Jesus. They told me about the Ten Commandments. They encouraged me to live a good life. But for me, instead of becoming this wonderful blessing that led to humility and gratitude and me like wanting to reflect who God is to other people became the opposite, became an occasion for me to feel superior to other people. Even though my compliance was only outward and not a matter of the heart. Same exact dynamic. The gift of the law, but it becomes a club to make the one holding it feel superior and everyone else seem Inferior, And maybe you have a similar story. The law becoming a separator of people, like a wall. We're good. You're bad. We're honoring God. You're not honoring God. Hostility develops. Pride develops. Resentment develops. All those things happen in my life. That's what happened between the Jews and the Gentiles. All this hostility. And Paul tells us here that Jesus broke down that wall of hostility by abolishing or nullifying 
the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Okay, now, so here's what happened when Jesus came on the scene regarding the law, the law of Moses. Number one, he pointed out to Jews who had the law that they had not actually been keeping the law. That's the first thing that happened. He pointed out to Jews who had the law that they hadn't actually been keeping it. Think of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, and how he shows them that the law is so much deeper than they thought. Oh, you think that you're not committing adultery. Well, did you realize that even a longing look constitutes adultery? Oh, I guess I'm not keeping the law. And he said many other such things like this to show them the true depth of the law's requirement. So he first pointed out to Jews, this is how he's abolishing or nullifying the law. He pointed out to Jews, you're not actually keeping it. Secondly, he did fulfill the law himself. Like he actually did keep it. Perfectly. To the depths of his being, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And he fulfilled the law. Told the Jews, you're you're not actually keeping the law. Secondly, he did fulfill it himself. And thirdly, he called all people to him in order to be saved. Jew and Gentile. I, when I am lifted up, will draw all mankind, all people to myself. John 12. When Jesus came on the scene, he pointed out to the Jews that they weren't actually keeping the law. He did fulfill the law himself. And then he calls everyone, Jew and Gentile, to him in order to be saved. So notice then, notice, all that to say, notice how he destroyed in his death the basis for superiority. This is what he said. Jews, you need a savior. Yes, you, you who have the law and think you're doing such a great job keeping it and you're better than everyone else. No, your law keeping is not enough. You need someone else's obedience to save you. Someone else has to keep the law. You can't, you aren't. It's not just those others who need God's mercy. It's you. How humbling must that have been? And Gentiles, as for you, you need a savior. And guess what? The savior that you must bow down to in order to be saved is a Jew. You have to worship a Jew. Do you see God's wisdom? In one person, all of mankind is completely leveled. There's no grounds for boasting anymore if you're a Jew. And if you're a Gentile, you have been brought low just like them because you hear that you need a Savior and you have to bow to a Jew. Jesus is the great leveler of humanity. There is no longer any basis 
whatsoever for any claim to superiority by anyone. Never, ever, 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 ever listen to or follow a leader who starts to say things like, those other people aren't really human or they're somehow inferior to us. That is a lie straight from the devil. The greatest and most horrific crimes against humanity, so think genocide, think holocaust, have been carried out by leaders who convince their followers that those other people are inferior to us and they aren't really human. There are no superior or inferior people. There are better and worse positions on issues. There are better and worse priorities. There are better and worse policies. As they do or don't conform to the priorities of God and the kingdom of God. But those things, positions and priorities and policies, must always be separated from the people that hold them. We're all fully human. We all bear the image of God. The same price was paid for us all. The blood of Jesus of infinite value, same price paid for people of every nation, tribe, and tongue. There are no superior people. There are no superior people. There are no superior people. Only a superior God. All of us lie face down before the cross of Jesus Christ. He has destroyed the basis for superiority by his life and by his death. None of us can be good enough. We all need him. Only Jesus can unite diverse peoples together because only in him is the basis of superiority obliterated. All right, last thing. Why? Why does he, why does he do this? Why does he unite? What's his purpose? Paul tells us about that too. He tells us that Jesus unites diverse peoples. He tells us how he does it, destroying the basis for superiority. And he tells us why. And we can sum up the why really with, with two words. The first one is he does it. He unites diverse people in order to reconcile. That's the first reason. He has a, a reconciling purpose. This is verses 16 through 22. If you're tracking through the passage, he is a reconciler. So on the horizontal level, like he reconciles us to each other, man, man to man, mankind to mankind. We, that's what we've just been talking about, making peace between people who are different from each other. So he reconciles on the horizontal level. Paul also says he reconciles on the vertical level. He reconciles mankind to God, verse 16. He did all these things, abolished the law, and therefore the hostility, he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. So one of his purposes in uniting diverse peoples is to reconcile us to each other, to restore us relationally to each other. 
so that he might then be the restorer of our relationship to God. He's a restorer of relationship. That's what it means to be a reconciler, like you restore relationships. Why do our relationships need to be restored? Well, because sin has crept into all of our relationships. Sin sin has just marred all of even our best relationships, our relationships with each other, our relationships with God. We hate each other. There's greed, there's jealousy, there's selfishness, there's pride. Why don't we love and seek God? Well, we don't like his law, which is to say we don't like his character. We don't care to represent his character. His law requires us to be good. We'd rather be bad. We think sin is attractive and not God. That's in our natural condition. We have all these disordered tastes and desires, and the result is all this fracturing of relationship. It's all broken. How, how have you seen sin disrupt your relationships lately? Either with another person or with, or with God? It's painful, isn't it? There was a time in history when it wasn't this way. Like in Eden, when it was just Adam and Eve before they sinned, they had a relationship with each other that was without shame. Like, remember reading, they were naked and they were not ashamed? They also had a relationship with God that was without shame. They were not hiding from him. After they sinned, they were hiding from him. Everything changed when Adam and Eve sinned, but Jesus Christ, by his life and death, being perfect, and taking our sin on himself and satisfying God, one of the things he has done is he has restored our without shame relationships. If you have not believed in Jesus Christ to be saved, just know that he is the one who restores your without shame relationship to God. You may feel very ashamed today, just very aware of all the things that keep you from God. The the guilt you feel for the thoughts, for the actions, for the things that you've said. What I want you to know is that Jesus has seen you at your worst and loved you anyway. And died for you anyway. In fact, he came for that very purpose because you needed someone to love you in that condition. And instead of rejecting you because of that sin between you and God, instead of rejecting you, he owned your sin as his own. Even though he did not have any sin of his own, he owned yours and took on himself the shame that you feel. Because of your sin, he took that shame, naked and exposed on the cross, mocked in front of everyone, killed, dying, a robber's death. He, he took the, the penalty that your sin deserves. So that guilty feeling you have before God because of your sin, that's a right feeling to have. It is right for that sin to be punished. God can't just forgive you and wipe the slate clean. 
what you have to understand is that Jesus took the punishment for you. All you have to do is receive that gift. And in return, he gives you his perfect moral life. You could picture it as a white robe that he gives you. You have been credited with all of his perfections. That's the exchange. And he restores that without shame relationship between you and God. So that you can stand here today without any shame at all before God. By faith in Jesus Christ. And if you have never asked God for that exchange... If you have never done that and taken that exchange, do it today and then come and tell me after the service that you did it and we will plan your baptism. That time where you get to actually picture the washing away of your sins and being clean, coming up out of the water, your sin having been washed away by faith in Jesus. Jesus is a reconciler. He is the path home to God. It's not by what you can do to be better, but by what he's done for you. Jesus is a reconciler. The other purpose that Paul puts before us here, so remember, we're asking the question, well, why does Jesus unite diverse peoples? One reason is to reconcile us to each other, us to God. The second reason is to build. There's a a building theme that's mentioned here. That's in verse 20. He's building something. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That's verse 20. Verse 22, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see the the building uh, image that Paul uses like to show us what's happening? Jesus unites in order to build. So think about it this way. It would be easy to think that Jesus' work is only restorative that his work on the cross was only to restore us to like the original state, right? The way that a car collector would get an old car and try to restore it to what it was before. Be easy to think that Jesus' work was only restorative, that it kind of wipes the slate clean and makes it all like it was at the beginning. But that's actually not true. There's some, there is something new that he's doing. He doesn't just restore to a previous condition. There's something new here. There's something that was not in Eden. Even in Eden, where there was all of that beauty, there is a structure that is being built now that was not there. And this structure that's being built now would never have come about if the Son of God would not have become incarnate and come down to earth and redeemed people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. What is that thing? It is a new, holy, beautiful dwelling place for God. The beauty of of Eden was in the, the gold, in the Genesis describes all these things, the gold and the bdellium and the onyx and every kind of tree and flower that was pleasant, pleasant to the sight, it says, good for food, and all the diversity of animals. That was the beauty that was present in Eden. And God dwelled there. But now, now what we learn is that a new dwelling place for God is being built with diverse, beautiful faces. 
in diverse, beautiful voices, in diverse, beautiful languages. And we, we read in Genesis 1 that a, like a mist in a, a river sprang up from the ground. But instead of now in this new dwelling place, instead of it being like a mist springing up from the ground or water springing up from the ground, there's something new that's springing up in this new dwelling place. And it is a song of praise to God from the redeemed. And the Holy Spirit tunes all of the voices, all of the beautiful languages that are represented. The Holy Spirit tunes them all to one theme, and that one theme is grace. God's capacity and desire to welcome the offender back to him with open arms. Grace has always been present in God, but it would never have been discovered or praised if the world had not fallen and needed redemption. And now we have seen it. And now that quality of God that we treasure so much will be sung of forever because Jesus is building by the Spirit a beautiful, diverse temple of praise for his Father. Notice the Trinity. Jesus the Son is by the Spirit building a beautiful, diverse dwelling place for the Father. And he has accomplished the work himself. And he is the cornerstone. And for that work, Jesus is glorified forever in the beautiful global church. So when we do global missions, we go out and gather these precious ones for the building that's currently under construction. Let's stand together. God, we praise the name of Jesus Christ for this this work. He is, uh, he is the good leader that we have needed and longed for. We acknowledge him as the cornerstone of this building. We, we just humbly say thank you that we get to be part of it. This building is not centered on us. Forgive us for, for thinking that this whole endeavor and even global missions could center on, on us, on our country, on our people. No, we're, we're beneficiaries of the missional effort that started on the other side of the world. We've just been brought in. And thank you so much that we too have been brought in, though not deserving. And so we, we tune our hearts to that one theme of the Holy Spirit called the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you, thank you in his holy name. Amen.